Welcome to Bluegrass Stories with Katie Daly and me. I'm Howard Parker. Long known by some as the bad boys of bluegrass, the New Grass Revival came together as four members of the Bluegrass Alliance, Courtney Johnson, Ebo Walker, Sam Bush, and Curtis Birch quit the band to form a new band as radical in its day as Monroe was decades earlier when he formed the Bluegrass Boys. Thirty years later, as the New Grass Revival is to be inducted into the IBMA Bluegrass Hall of Fame, founding member Sam Bush recounts the band's history and celebrates the impact that the band has made on the contemporary bluegrass music scene. Here's Sam Bush talking with Katie Daly. We're recording this in July, so we're uh, way ahead of the game when it comes to awards. But I'm telling you, what took so long for the New Grass Revival to be inducted into the Bluegrass Hall of Fame? Well, I guess it just needed to go another 30 years since we broke up that um, the trends in bluegrass you know, have uh, not only stayed traditional, but, of course, a lot of young people are picking up this new grass kind of mantle. And I think we have a a different generation, really, than ever heard the band is now aware of us. And um, maybe that's, and, of course, their IBMA members are voting now. I I guess that's where it came from. But... um, we we uh, as time has passed, uh, you know, maybe uh, thanks to digital radio and what have you, we're we're still uh, we're still getting airplay, and people are thinking about us again. And it was a great band. It was sure a, a wonderful way to spend my youth. <laughs> <laughs> well, then take us back to the days of your youth and tell us how it all got started and who was involved and and just walk us through that career. Well, uh, New Grass Revival was originally sort of an, well, very definitely, an, an offshoot of the band Bluegrass Alliance. Now, I, of course, the Alliance came from Louisville, Kentucky. I was from down in Bowling Green. I was still in high school when that band, the Bluegrass Alliance, was started. I would go up, uh, ride the Greyhound up occasionally to sit in with them in Louisville. And, uh, and one of those trips, I actually went up to join the Musicians Union. So um, I was friends with the band, and then, you know, long short of it, I was hired after I got out of high school to actually replace Dan Crary on guitar. And uh, it was, and we were doing club work in the August of 1970. Then we went to uh, Dan Crary and Danny Jones in the Bluegrass Alliance, had a few more commitments, even though they had already left the band, a few festival commitments they wanted to do and agreed with. So we all, but I would still, uh, even I was technically in the band already, so I would go to the festivals with them as the sixth person. And we were at the Reedsville, North Carolina Festival, and um, we had uh, Camp Springs, I guess, so 1970. And I was uh, playing, uh, you know, with them when uh, my friend uh, John Caparacus said, uh, there's a guy sitting over in the field that's playing like Clarence White. Let's go. And so we go over there, and it was the world's skinniest man sitting there on a Martin Unipack blue case. Turned out it was Tony Rice, and uh, so I was uh, I was 18 at the time. Tony was 19, and we uh, made pals. And uh, shoot, I asked him to join the band. Well, and that's when I found out the youngest member of the band, or if you're in, no member of a band, can one person ask another guy to join a whole band? <laughs> I found out the hard way. But at any rate, when we got back to camp and everybody heard him play around the campfire, um, it was all agreed. I can put me on mandolin and, 
and uh, get uh, Tony on guitar. And that's the way it was for a year. And uh, it was a wonderful, wonderful time. For, so that was you know, my time in Bluegrass Alliance. Then uh, in the fall of 71, we had a parting of the ways with our fiddler, Lonnie Pierce. Oh, and by the way, Curtis Birch had taken Tony's place on guitar literally a year later at Camp Springs. And uh, and that year later, when 71 was when the movie uh, Bluegrass Country Soul was filmed, and Tony's very last song with us is on that film when I sang 110 Soldier. So the huh. very next day, Curtis took his place on guitar and that Tony wouldn't play another note with us. <laughs> and uh, so anyhow, we were the Bluegrass Alliance at with Curtis Birch on guitar, uh, Courtney Johnson, Ebo Walker, me, and Lonnie Pierce. We recorded one single, a very unheard of thing, uh, our version of The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down for Plantation Records. And I'm, I may have the only copy. <laughs> and uh, so uh, it all came to a head when we got in a, in a band, Weirdness, down at the DJ convention in October that year. And um, the, the other four of us wanted Lonnie Pierce, our fiddle player, to leave the band. Well, we found out when asking him to leave the band that he owned the name of the band, and by golly, he did. So I think me and all my brilliance as the 19-year-old then said, well, let me put it this way. We all quit. So the four, four people quit the Bluegrass Alliance to start Newgrass Revival. So Ebo, Courtney, Curtis, and Sam started Newgrass Revival. And, uh, and, and that was 1971? It was the fall of 71. And although mm-hmm. I don't think we actually called ourselves New Grant, we didn't have a name for a while. We were Johnson, Johnson, uh, Bush, Walker, and Birch, which sounded like a, you know a very poor law firm. And uh, so we, uh, <laughs> so we went out and we played. Uh, and I believe the first time, one of the first times we were ever called New Grass Revival, it was always great, for, funny to me that uh, was uh, we went up to play at the Brown County Jamboree in Bean Blossom, Indiana. This is before there was a Bean Blossom Festival. And uh, Bill Monroe's Brown County Jamboree. So Birch Monroe liked us, and he hired us. And we went up, and uh, and the first band introduction I ever recall us having was Birch Monroe saying, Ladies and gentlemen, here's the New Grass Revival Boys. So <laughs> he always added boys to everything, I guess. And, uh, and it wasn't lost on me that when we did our final gig in New Year's on New Year's Eve, uh, 1989, opening for the Grateful Dead at Oakland Coliseum. Bill Graham himself mispronounced our name. <laughs> it was a, so just a wonderful button to put on the end of the band. <laughs> I guess he thought he had it wrong or something. He was introducing. He goes, "Ladies and gentlemen, the Newgrass Bluegrass Revival." <laughs> and you can hear me and John Cowan howling with laughter in the background on this tape I have. Anyhow, so we, after getting the band going, um, you know, that was our original group, and we recorded our first record for Star Day in the, I guess, the summer of 72. I uh, think it, so I guess it really didn't come out till probably January 73. And on the back of that first album for Star Day, it was, it was just called New Grass Revival, uh, we had a poem by a friend of ours we'd ask and who was you know somewhat famous in america john hartford we had before wow. at, at that bean blossom festival in 71 the aerial plan the aerial plane band was playing there and that was a, a, a life-changing experience hearing the aerial plane band out in the audience it was just amazing and uh so uh, we asked john to write a poem for the back of our first record and he wrote this neat poem about us 
But I remember him signing, you know, and his nickname back then, a lot of people called him Radio John. And uh, from way back when he was a DJ on WHOW <laughs> in Missouri. Uh, who? And uh, so um, John wrote a poem about us, and at the bottom, a lot of people don't know who wrote the poem, but it just says, Radio John, Topanga Canyon, 72. And I remember huh. even Curtis looking at the back of the album when we found, and we were all thrilled our album comes out, there we are, and um, the old green album. And uh, I remember Curtis Bird saying, who's Radio John? I said, well, that's hard for me. <laughs> he said, well, that don't help us a damn bit, does it? <laughs> well, now this we had is a star endorsement right off the bat. And... Um, so that band uh, survived like that in the in the uh, now early '73. Uh, look, I guess we had uh, come to about oh gosh, I can't remember what month it was. March around in there. I have it on a calendar. We had just completed opening. Um, a couple of weeks on the road with John Hartford, and it was really a big thrill for us. And and John had become a solo performer by then and was flying to all his jobs. And then he just said, well, mind if I just ride with you guys? <laughs> we said, sure. So he started riding with us and wanted to share in the driving. And and uh, he just he said, God, I miss being in a band. <laughs> and uh, So that was that way. And then literally we walked in the door in Louisville at probably 4 a.m., and there was a call uh, after completing our John Hartford trip. We were sitting on top of the world, just having done played with John Hartford through you know Iowa and the Dakotas, and it's just really great Kansas. And uh, back then, you played coffee houses, and and colleges had a great acoustic music scene going for us entertainers. And uh, walked in the house, and lo and behold, there's a call in at 4:30 in the morning, and it's Butch Robbins, and Butch had. Ah. Liv was living in Nashville, and he and Tut Taylor had played on Leon Russell's country album that Leon did not want to use his own name on. He called it Hank Wilson. So he called it Hank Wilson's Back. So Butch played five-string dobro, and Tut played you know, dobro on that recording. Well, Butch was hanging with the filmmaker Les Blank. They were looking for a country band to back Leon. He wanted to open the show for himself as Hank Williams, and then, excuse me, Hank Wilson. And then he would come out as Leon Russell, who was drawing 25,000 people a night. It was rock and roll hysteria. Well, by golly, Butch, later that day, Katie, we were sitting in Leon Russell's house in Tulsa to become Leon's backup band on his country. Oh, my Oh my now, gosh! We got out there. We were starting, and you know, we were freaked out because we only we had two heroes in our band. One was John Hartford, and the other was New it was Leon Russell. And we would drive around listening to this cassette tape. One side was the Aeroplane Band, the Aeroplane album. The other side was Leon Russell and the Shelter People. And cosmically, there we were in Leon's house after the day before playing with John Hartford. Well, we started rehearsing, and we weren't very good at those country songs. And I thought, sure, he was going to send us home. And uh, all of a sudden, Leon just went, you know what, I'm not ready to, I won't, I won't imitate his voice. But well, he said, I'm not ready. I'm not ready to stand up there with an acoustic guitar. Why don't you all just open the tour? 
So for two and a half months, we rode on his plane, went everywhere they went, stayed in the same hotels, taxes withheld. We worked for Leon Russell and the Shelter Corporate, Shelter Records Corporation for two and a half months. And it was well, what exposure the band is getting with you know John Hartford and Leon Russell. This is amazing beginning for a young band. We made it. It was it was terrifying the first few jobs. I mean, walking out there, we we didn't pl- we didn't even plug in yet. So the four of us with Butch on uh, five string dobro and and certain songs, him and Courtney would play twin banjos. And boy, those two guys, it sounded like two drummers popping it. So we did two and a half months. It one of the greatest experiences of our life. And uh, and as soon as that tour was over, the final the final night was in Santa Monica, California, in May. And uh, when the tour was over, we flew home. Oh, and by the way, the, after that gig, there was a party on the Queen Mary, and uh, docked there. So we all go to this gigantic party, and that was the only night we didn't get to stand on stage wherever we wanted to because George Harrison came, and they didn't want anybody bugging George. So oh on the God. Queen Mary, Leon says to me there's somebody i want you to meet and he took me and introduced me to george harrison and i literally oh my god was sitting at a table and i must say my knees kind of went out from under me and i literally kind of fell to my knees at him with him and he was you know i got to talk with him i just remember him going oh you were in the bluegrass band (laughs) and so (laughs) it was it was just the whole thing was surreal and the very next day after that, Katie, we fly back to Louisville, Kentucky, load up the station wagon, drive to Lafayette, Indiana, where we played three weeks, six nights a week at Arnie's Pizza King, right back to Earth. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the way it's, it must uh, it have was, all seemed like a dream when you're at Arnie's now. Pizza Party. It did at the time, really. I mean, uh, I, I just remember a lot of times during that two and a half month tour. Just wondering what in the world we were doing there. How did this happen? What are we doing here? And especially where we had an incredibly hairy plane ride getting into Baton Rouge, Louisiana one day. It was a 36-passenger private prop jet Leon had. Mm. And it was an incredible lightning storm. And, I mean, you know, thoughts enter your mind was, is that why I'm here? I was destined to go down with Leon Russell. Is that what the hell is going on? And when we came out of a cloud bank, the plane was sideways, and we were literally 100 feet over cows in a field. And somehow they got it straightened out, and it was just terrifying. Plus, on that flight, that's that's when old Sam Bush found out that when you fly with a bad cold, you got trouble. Both my eardrums hmm. burst on that plane. So it was a, it was a tough thing. It was we, I had to play about three jobs. I couldn't hear anything, and I we Curtis Curtis would just literally move his guitar neck. There's the downbeat. Here we go. I mean, I could barely hear. It was just amazing. So you know, yeah, I had a little bit of damage to my left ear out of that. Let me ask you, Sam. Was there any change? in your music during this time? I mean, were you all still playing the same stuff from Starday, or did... Oh, yeah. Were these we were doing our Starday record. We were doing our Starday record, and we were ending the show with Orange Blossom Boogie, <laughs> we called it, and uh, I did, yeah, we and, you know, we Curtis played Randy Lynn Rag at two banjos, doing my time with two banjos, and then our Starday music, I think we would play about 30 minutes, seems like. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
and somehow we toughed it out, you know. No, people weren't people were receptive. They weren't booing us off stage or anything. And of course, a lot of people don't pay attention to the front band anyway in that kind of situation. But it was a it was an amazing thing, and to watch Leon work and how he did it, and no, it it was highly educational. And God, I wouldn't trade it for anything. Looking back, so then, but I guess we did have we all kind of had to come back to earth that that summer you know and get back to what we were doing and and um well by the time the the fall came around we asked uh, we asked ebo to leave the band too we needed to make a change and uh and butch robbins actually played the bass with us for a year mm-hmm. within that year the last five months of butch's tenure electric bass uh we added a drummer michael Clem, that we saw play with eddie adcock second generation and we 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 tried the drummer. It just didn't really. We're, it just it didn't really ever sound as good to us. So when John Callen joined the band, um, for various reasons, the decision was made to uh, go back to no drums. So John joined in the fall of '74. Okay. And, uh, and I will say, while Butch was in the band, he was you know he was in charge of booking and dealing with the agent, and we we really burnt the road up. Boy, we burnt the road up uh, during that year. And, and you uh, were traveling uh, in a van or a bus no, or how were you? No, we had two cars. Uh, we were, uh, Butch and I were in his '66 uh, Dodge Charger. Courtney was in his '62. Courtney and Curtis were in his '62 uh, white Cadillac. And uh, Courtney Johnson was the best straight shade tree mechanic I ever met in my life. That guy was an amazing mechanic, and he taught me a lot about cars and, and troubleshooting. And I was, until cars got, uh, you know, computerized, I, I could troubleshoot and work on cars. Thank really? You. Yeah. But I remember one time I was beating a hubcap on, I, I bone bruised my hand or something. Courtney said, Sammy, you can't be using your hands for hammers now <laughs> if you want to play that mandolin. <laughs> So and within and on that, um, I'll try to be brief. But in that, at the end of uh, uh, the, the fall of '74, we met up with Doc and Merle at the Winfield Kansas Festival, and we went on to to tour, opening for Doc and Merle. And um, and they uh, and at that time, Merle had his band called Frosty Morn. So we would play Newgrass Revival would open the show, and then Frosty Morn Merle's band would play, which included T. Michael on bass. And uh, Joe Smothers, Lamar Hill, um, and then Doc Watson, Doc and Merle and Michael would play, and me and Courtney would end up, and sometimes Curtis too. We'd end up sitting in with Doc at the end of the show. Mm-hmm. So a relationship developed with Doc, and uh, we went. I mean, man, we went to Colorado with him, and all the way down to San Diego, all through northern up to Northern California, ending. Uh, Oh gosh! Well, uh, Eureka maybe I think was the last job, and then we drove back. And, uh, and in the meantime, we had made a rec- a second record for Shelter Records on Leon's label in Tulsa. And uh, between you and I, it wasn't as good as our first Green album. It wasn't as good. We had made a second uh, album with Ebo for Starday that never came out. Then we made a half a record for Starday with Butch that never came out. And uh, we were just stymied for a while. But anyhow, what time we got home, Butch decided to leave. He wanted to go back and play banjo. And he, and originally, after us, first thing he did was Will Moline and Stoney Cooper. And, and then within a short period, he uh, I don't know how long he spent there, but then he, then he became Bill. What he wanted to do, play banjo with Bill Monroe. So he's mm-hmm. the only guy that ever went from Newgrass Revival to Bill Monroe. 
I'm going to say that was quite a whiplash there. What he always wanted to do. He, he, was, he felt he was born to do that. And um, so at any rate, uh, John joined up, and uh, Shelter Record also didn't come out. And uh, so once John joined it, we had this new voice, this fantastic voice. And there's a, it's the story of John coming down to kind of audition for the band. Well, heck, me and Courtney were out in the kitchen getting some coffee, and we just got excited hearing him tune his bass. Well, man, we got a we got a we got a bona fide electric bass playing son of a gun here. And uh, so we played some songs, and man, it's like sounds great. You want to join the band? He goes, Yeah, I sing too. Can I? You know, <laughs> And uh, and I was, if you've ever seen the Andy Griffith episode of Barney Fife and his singing, a couple of episodes. So I was pretty. I'm sure I had the posture of Barney Fife saying, "Yeah, go ahead," but you know I'm the lead singer here, so but yeah, go go ahead and <laughs> me and Curtis do the lead. And um, well, John sang uh, "Some Old Day," it was the only bluegrass song he knew. And wow. up in the key of C, like John Duffy, but with John's powerful voice and that vibrato, and went, wow! And he got through at the end of the song, and I remember saying, uh, John, I used to be the lead singer in this band, and uh, <laughs> you're going to be. And uh, But I mean, I kept singing lead, and I always sang lead on all the choruses, simply because John was the best tenor singer, probably. Uh, by far the best tenor singer. And uh, yeah, so, well, don't put yourself don't put yourself down as a lead singer. I I've enjoyed no, many many songs sung by you. Well, if anything, since since now you know New Grass Revival is in my really in my thought pattern since it's been announced that we're going in the Hall of Fame. Uh, I've been listening to the old records and. You know, uh, uh, it's 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 wild hearing a prepubescent voice sing, but uh, um, <laughs> no, I'm, I mean I've I've always enjoyed singing, and of course I enjoy it better now than I ever have. But um, but but uh, any rate, once we got John, then we had this voice that could literally make people stop talking in a in a loud bar when he when he right. sang. We had a voice that that could uh, drive the band as much as our instruments could, and so. And so that was the way we were until, uh, what, the fall of 79 uh, with that lineup. And, you know, made records for Flying Fish Records. During that time, my goodness, we were the hardest working front band in history. I mean, we played on more shows, opening for people. It's just amazing looking back some of the people we opened for, you know. And, uh, I mean, I remember Jesse Colin Young was really great to get to do, you know, of course, Goose, Goose Creek Symphony. Hartford, we kept opening for Hartford, and then we'd, did, we'd kind of be his band for the second set, you know, or the second, in, the second half his set, we'd end up back in John. It was a labor of love. We loved it. And, um, but, and then uh, in the fall of 79, what am I saying? It was that that band was that way till the fall of '81 or right. But uh, in the fall of '79, I'll be doggone if we weren't go check this out for full circus. So we're we're opening for Hartford in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Somewhere it's probably September that year. I'm guessing August or September. It was hot, hot in Tulsa, of course. And um, danged if Leon Russell wasn't driving by with a friend and looked up in the uh, marquee and said, "New Grass Revival, John Hartford at the Apollo Delmon." theater and um and he said well i ain't seen those guys for years and he stopped and came in and we were doing a sound check and he ended up playing with us that night 
and then we, after the uh, show, went back to his friend's house, uh, who's by, whose name, by the way, was Steve Bush, uh, went back to his house, jammed all night with Leon, and then before we knew it, we were in Nashville recording with him, and uh, then that was continued on to Los Angeles, Hollywood, where Leon's, you know, where he lived and had his studios. We worked harder, and that that album never even came out till the, you know, I don't know, in the 2000s, probably, called Rhythm and Bluegrass, which we were really proud of, our studio record with Leon, and never came out. But anyhow, we started back with Leon, and we became his backup band for two years, and um, and that lasted till the fall of uh, um, 81. Now, right. in May of 81, Courtney and Curtis decided they'd had enough, and they couldn't take it anymore, and got off the road, and... Um, so leaving me and John to we we stayed with Leon until we could get the band. We always knew we wanted to get the band going back again. So, so at that point, you added Bela and Pat Bela Fleck and Pat Flynn mm-hmm. in the fall of that year. So that was around October. Uh, I had known Bela. Actually, met well. Actually, first heard of Bela because uh, Butch got Bela to play the banjo on his own record on Butch's record, and Butch played a mandolin <laughs> instrumental. <laughs> I mean, me and John Cowan and John Caparakis were, were, and Jim Brock were the band on Butch's record called Fragments of My Imagination. And, uh, wow. And uh, for the first time I heard of Bela Fleck, Butch said, this kid is the best banjo player I've ever seen. And so, uh, but I didn't meet him until uh, we were on the same job with uh, Tasty Licks he was in with Jack Tottle. So uh, Bale was, you know, really a youngster, and um, so I knew that that to replace Courtney Johnson, I wanted I wanted that guy because oh, and then Bale and I we did make acquaintance. He and then he got me to that's how it worked. He got me to play fiddle on his first album, Bob Applebaum oh. and Lynn and I played fiddle on Crossing the Tracks, and um, so at any rate, I knew of Bale. And really, when Bela came down to play with me and John, you can say we auditioned him. I think he was auditioning us. And uh, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, okay, here's something a little funny. Bela said, "If I join New Grass Revival, do I have to take drugs?" <laughs> oh. And I said, "Hell no! I do all the drugs in this band." So, uh, <laughs> so at any rate, uh, but yeah. And then we knew of Pat Flynn in that. Uh, Pat was part of a duet with a guy named Scott Myers, and we met them opening up for Newgrass Revival in the state of Colorado. So we knew of Pat and his good picking and his songwriting and singing. So Bale and Pat didn't actually meet till our first rehearsal. John and I recruited Pat, and we recruited Bela. And so that was the fall of 81, and the rest was just those four of us. So that's, that's how it worked. And it was a very good fit. Absolutely. I mean, uh, and um, and of course, we really cha- we changed directions a few times within the life of our band. I mean, I can, as uh, you know, I was telling you now. Now I've been going back and listening to old records and really appreciating it for what we accomplished. And uh, and to see, there's an amazing difference between our first record and our second record. And um, it's, I mean, of course, John had joined in the second record, and and. Uh, I remember us getting a bad review in the Louisville paper because we didn't include an instrumental on the second record, and and we we went 
So there's a rule you have to always include an instrumental. <laughs> Hell, if we got this great singer, we wanted to. Anyhow, so uh, but but uh, it was, uh, and then you know, then you then then you can hear, of course, more difference when we, as we progressed in our Flying Fish records, and then the very last record Courtney and Curtis played on was our record called Commonwealth. And we had been playing with Leon, and I think Leon's on uh, three songs on that record with us. And so that was now, when you, totally a great artist was coming together. No, that's, that's what I wanted to ask. When you say you progressed, does that mean the band got tighter, the you know, musicianship got better, or does it mean the, the music became more progressive? I mean, tell me what you Kinda mean by all that. that. And, of course, we got tighter, and, and when John came in and we really honed it down we did a lot of rehearsing but uh we i feel that you know i was writing a lot with my friend Stephen bryan steve bryan's back then so steve and i wrote the songs and uh, as you and i talk i've actually been learning some of those songs again writing them down steve was an amazing lyricist and so mm-hmm. we you know we 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 started having our own music you know we were writing our own tunes courtney was writing curtis was writing instrumentals uh i was uh, writing with steve a lot and um and then you know again and by on our uh when a storm is al- album we added drums on certain songs in the studio the great kenny malone we had keyboards sometimes to reinforce things in a subtle way we were hoping and then by a commonwealth our last album with courtney and curtis we had you know tried we were trying way all kinds of, you know different things electronic instruments uh, i remember courtney had a you know like a echoplex <laughs> you know delayed banjo solo and we were just trying different things and well uh, was there any was there any line in which you said well we're not going to cross over into that or you know or, or was there nope. just no limits to what you would try uh i think the only limit was just things we hadn't learned yet but uh we uh-huh. no, we always we always tried to do different things we just didn't know about reggae yet <laughs> i hadn't even i hadn't yet discovered uh not sure I had discovered Bob Marley yet, uh, but um, but you know, but the we always uh, we we never limited ourselves. And by the way, back then, you know, we were careful not to call ourselves bluegrass because we had too many people at festivals and, and traditionalists and album reviewers, what have you. They go, well, that ain't bluegrass, and we would always say, we know. And um, and it is interesting that what one of our goals, because we loved bluegrass, we loved it, and there was just no use in us playing like Bill Monroe and Flatt and Scruggs. And our there was just we we were expressing ourselves. We weren't we had no plan. We weren't trying. We weren't trying to be different just for the sake of that. That's just the way we played. I mean, I played different. Then, then I was playing differently. Uh, Courtney, no one played the banjo like Courtney, and Curtis, at the time, to me was totally on par. And this, this is a tall compliment to him. He was on par with Mike Aldridge. I mean, they were uh, they were pals. Uh, we literally at a party one night at John Starling's. I actually saw Curtis do this lick that Mike Aldridge was sitting on the edge of his chair, and he actually kind of fell out of it for a second watching Curtis do this. Whoa! How did you do that? And uh, so uh, we had this world-class dobro player. And um, so, but at any rate, yes, we, 
in, in terms of progressiveness of music and different directions. Uh, I remember we were greatly influenced by the band C-Train, you know, they had Richard Green and Peter Rowan and Larry. Mm-hmm. So I would end up playing with Larry Atomanyuk on drums. I would end up playing many, many years with later on in life. And um, so, yeah. You know, you said two things, that of the great bands that I know, they've all mentioned this, and that is not trying to sound like anyone else, just trying to be yourselves. And the second thing is when you start making your own, writing your own songs, that you're not doing cover stuff anymore, and that that is what puts bands, the famous ones, into, you know, overdrive mm-hmm. and sets them apart from everyone else. Well, and, and, and we too, you know, we're searching for a new kind of songs. And again, uh, uh, you know, as we speak, I think some of the only people I know that are like me that grew up on a farm hauling hay and, you know, cows and hogs, uh, Dale McCurry and the Gibson Brothers, <laughs> you know, at this time. And um, so, uh, but we were looking for different subject matter even in the songs because times had changed. We, you know, nobody in the band grew up on our little cabin home on the hill. I grew up with indoor plumbing and TV research right. to, to watch Nashville television and Flat and Scruggs and Porter Wagner and Ernest Tubb and all those things, Wilburn Brothers. So mm-hmm. um, it was it was just, but I'll tell you one thing. Um, I gotta, I gotta throw this in. I happened to see a friend of mine once play a song that he wrote, a tune that he wrote for Bill Monroe. He wrote it not for Bill, but he wrote it to see how close, if this makes sense, that it could sound to being like something Bill would write. And so he played it for Bill, and I just remember Bill, you know, as he would look over his glasses at you, uh, he went. That's real good. Now, what can you do on your own? Mm-hmm. And I just took that to mean that Bill Monroe expected you to do your own and not just copy him. And I think uh, um, he might not have liked this always, but I think he did not respect this, You know, if that makes sense. Um, but um, I just always took that because... That's what Bill Monroe did. He didn't play like the like the, the the string bands, and he you know he didn't play like the fruit jar drinkers and the coon hunters and the crook brothers. Uh, he was, I mean, Bill must have sounded like hillbilly. He was possibly the first hillbilly jazz. Um, so Bill Monroe was himself a radical departure uh, from anything that came before him in the world of string band music. And to con- to put these combinations of instruments together, he hit the jackpot. He made the sound. And um, so uh, we we always believed that Monroe wanted that, you know, he, he kind of, because, in, 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 and of course, in years later, Bill came, he came around. He hired us for, he hired us for festivals. We played on Bill Monroe festivals in the, in the later, in the latter 80s. And, mm-hmm. uh, because he found out people wanted to hear our music too, and um, so you know <laughs> he might not always like this, but he <laughs> but I, I will say uh, you know when I had uh, uh, cancer in '82, Bill called the hospital and said he'd help me however he could, whatever he could do. That's nice. That's very nice. Wow, Sam, what a life you've had, and that was going on almost 50 years ago and you've had a whole new career in music and bands ever you know since then well, um, yeah well after when the revival broke up i um uh, 
you know, I had to make a decision. Do we, do we want to, well, Balo, you know, was, was leaving to join the Flectones, and, and we knew, you know, it was time. Um, he wrote so many tunes, we couldn't possibly, we were really a vocal band, more, of course, than an instrumental group, so we couldn't possibly accommodate all the tunes he was writing. And uh, to be honest, I'm not sure we re- could even play them. Um, and and uh, I, Lynn and I were in the audience in Louisville when uh, we saw... Uh, a group of musicians Bela put together for a job up at the Kentucky Center for the Arts. A man named Richard Van Cleek would encourage us to put together ensembles of different things. And the Revival played there many times, and uh, Strength in Numbers later did too. So Bela put together a group with um, Howard Levy on harp, and who he'd met in Chicago with us. You know, Howard, I knew Howard, and from... Uh, his association with John Prine. So Lynn and I were in the audience watching uh, this uh, bail, a bail put together with Howard Levy and these two fantastic musicians uh, named Victor Wooten and uh, Roy Wooten. Roy Wooten being, you know, later known as Future Man, and with his with the with the electronic drumatar and all that. So we said we we went to the audience because uh, you know Lynn's. Mother's, you know, was living and there. We'd go up. We were in Louisville all the time. I had friends. We 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 went to Louisville when we had time off. So we went on up. We wanted to hear Bayless show. So we were sitting in the audience, and after about two songs, I could honestly look at uh, Lynn and go, "He's found it. He's found it. Mm-hmm. He's, that's what mm-hmm. he needs to do." And honestly, I. I wasn't even sad. I mean, it was just like this realization came that Bela needs to do this. And he did. And look what he's done, right? Look how well he's done for himself, and I'm really proud of him. And uh, yep. so, at any rate, when it came time to replace Bela, uh, at that time, as far as banjo, I didn't know where else you could go after him. And uh, But the overriding feeling was that John and I both needed a break. We had been, John had been in the band, Cowan had been in the band 15 years at that time. I'd been in Newgrass 18 years. Wow. And it's a pretty, you know, it was a, you know, it was a, it was an incredible road and a lot of amazing work. Oh, by the way, in that, in that front band stuff I was telling you about, we opened for Cheech and Chong a couple of nights. <laughs> it was incredible. And, it, if you, and their audience just came to throw stuff at them. What do you think, what do you think they did with a band with a banjo and a mandolin? <laughs> um, did they really throw things at you? There was some tossing. <laughs> we just, it was hilarious. Um, but anyhow, once uh, we, so John and I just decided we both needed a break. And for a while, John went totally heavy metal. He was singing with a hand mic with a band called Dr. Nick he formed. And that actually had one of the other Wootens, Reggie Wooten, on lead guitar, who was this fantastic lead guitar player. And you talk about volume, holy mama. Well, and for me, I didn't have a plan other than I just needed to get off the road. I was I was burnt out. Really, it was. I was also suffering from responsibility overload. I, w- I, you know, for 15 years, I had been the responsible party in the band of dealing with the agents and and you know, booking and what have you. And I just so there was no plan when out of lo and behold, staying at uh, well, Lynn was home in Nashville and she called me. I was staying with my friend Doug McCash, who used to play mandolin in the Grass Menagerie. Uh, Doug and Martha was at their house, and Lynn called and said, Amy Lou Harris is going to call you. 
at Doug's house, huh? He goes, Amy Lou wants to talk to you about being in a band. So John Starling had told her Newgrass Revival was breaking up, and Emmy had decided she wanted to uh, play in a more acoustic setting, that she, her, her group had gotten louder than she wanted to sing over the hot band. So um, she called and asked if I'd be interested in putting a band together with her. And I said, no, but I'll play in your band. I can't, I can't be part of any responsibility or decisions. Mm-hmm. So the greatest thing that happened, that could have happened to me did for five years, I was in, uh, Lynn called it blue, uh, you know, summer camp, music camp, that uh, we were the Nash Ramblers for five years. Uh, John Randall Stewart on guitar, Larry on drums, from who I had met when he was in C-Train, uh, Roy Husky Jr. on bass and the great Al Perkins on dobro, and uh, and me on mandolin fiddle and you know it was, it was it was just the greatest of jobs for five years that uh, I couldn't have I couldn't have fallen into a better situation and um, well, because it was my biggest responsibility was figuring out which T-shirt to wear that night and Emmy uh, <laughs> Emmy Lou did not care what you did or what you wore on stage. Just show up and do your job, and there'll be no problem. And, right. Uh, so it was just a wonderful thing, and I made a good friend with Emmy Lou, and um, um, it was. And so at the end of that, uh, of, of all craziness, I actually uh, Lyle Lovett needed somebody to fill in on a Canadian tour. Played with Lyle a little bit on that. And Bela, lo and behold, calls up and says, hey, we want to... Now the Flectones, uh, Howard Levy had left, and they were looking for... Uh, Bela said, I'd, I'd like to add you know, another musician, especially where we have... Re- now we're repeating places where we played as a trio already. Now I want to give them something else, and, and I'd like to be playing with you too. So why don't you come on the road Flectones for a while? So I did... I think I did... Uh, what was it? I think I did 86 shows that year with the Flectones. So that's a lot of playing and gosh it was great to get back to improvising and of course boy you you try to play with flectones you better be ready because they are and uh so it really it it whetted my appetite again for improvisational instrumental music and Mm -hmm. uh, so out of coming out of emmy's band and she was a great vocal coach for me by the way um so after playing in the nash ramblers five years playing with the flectones almost a year probably uh, I was ready to, to, to start my own trip again and uh, as Lynn would say then Sam's ego reared its ugly head once again and uh, so um, and, so and the Sam Bush fan was making, born yeah that's when I started making my own records in, in 96 mm-hmm. and um, you know I'm 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 happier and happier doing this and uh, we you know it's uh, it you know it, it finally reached the point where okay I'm ready to call it my band and take my lumps because I realized there was a, there was a safety in numbers of being in a group you know you could win and lose together uh, but you know you win and lose kind of well Lynn that Lynn and I are the partners we win and lose together but because Lynn by the way is this, our excellence money manager accountant that um, you know she's the business she was the new grass revivals business manager because once I got sick in 82 we didn't know what was going to happen and um, as the guys can uh, need uh, we don't know what's going to happen guys but I'm not going to live however long that may be lonesome on the road and I want my love to accompany me and so Lynn started working for the band 
selling shirts, doing the books. And um, when she left in the fall of 87, to she left to go back because she discovered she was interested in finances, lo and behold. And so she left to go, to co- to go back to college and get her accounting degree. And uh, then she went to work for the very money management firm that, sh- that she and I turned the money over to when she left, which was a pretty uh, respected deal here in Nashville, Chuck Flood and Associates. And when Chuck saw her, her homemade uh, method of accounting right down to the penny, he looked at her and goes, after you learn the principles of accounting, I'm hiring you. <laughs> and Lynn said, <laughs> you don't have enough money. Well, That's by right. golly, after she got out of college, she did go to work for Chuck Flood for a couple of years. And then we, till we, you know, had enough business going, she could leave. And then it's just been us two, you know, that's been Lynn running the Sam Bush Band business ever since. Well, there's no doubt that that's not only a great love affair. It is a beautiful partnership. So also congratulations to Lynn and all her contributions to your career in music and happiness. Absolutely. I mean, what, how... <laughs> I'm the luckiest fella in the world. I'm married to a wonderful, pretty woman that, um, you know, uh, is a great accountant, hates to shop, and loves sports. I mean, what more could... (laughs) Yeah, who else would go to a baseball, all that many baseball games with you? (laughs) Well, you know, I mean, when when we fell in love, um, she uh, knew tennis. One of her sisters was married is still married to a guy that was like number 15 tennis player in the world. So Lynn turned me on to tennis. I'd never watched a tennis match. And uh, and I turned her on to baseball, and we both fell in love with those sports. So uh, Well, when the sport comes back, let me invite both of you to come to D.C. and watch the world champion nationals. And even though they humiliated my St. Louis Cardinals, I was so for the Nationals. I was totally for the Nationals. I think that was just one of the greatest things. And uh, it was their year. And, and it, was, it was a great time. When they well, won Sam, the first this game is, against the Cardinals, I knew it was their year. Well, this is your year. And <laughs> I have to tell you how happy I am that the Newgrass Revival is going into the Bluegrass Hall of Fame in October it's a virtual ceremony. Have you gotten the details on that yet? Anything? Uh, how that's going to be done? Not totally. I, 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 uh, we, uh, I'm, I'm in touch with uh, Paul Scheminger, and they're, those, they're not totally solidified yet. But mm-hmm. uh, to where, where it's going to be and when. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just really happy. Of course, I wish we could all go to the festival. Uh, but really, I just wish we could be going to IBMA um, to hear the music. To see each other. Because my band was going to play on the Red Hat Amphitheater this year, uh, mm-hmm. and you know it's um, it's it's just unfortunate. But we ha- we got to be safe. And uh, but yes. e- either way, uh, uh, I'm I'm it, it does not being able to you know get applause from a, from an audience in, in the auditorium in Raleigh does doesn't diminish my feeling. And, and uh, uh, no, this is it's a big deal. And uh, it's a, it's I, a I very big deal. I, and I really didn't think it would come in my lifetime um, for the band. But I must say, I, I think it's just in that um, nobody played like us. And and we, I, I believe we, we are one of the more, if one of the most influential bands of the, 
of the last, you know, of the last 30 years of last century. Us, the seldom seen, and J.D. Crow's groups. I mean, that's, and, and, and I don't mean to diminish the country gentlemen, but they, I think they had already made their most influential, well, they, 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 I think they'd made their most influential marks by the, by the 1980. But, uh, mm-hmm. but, you know, when you think of how many people have tried to play their instruments like the individual members of the revival, and, and you know, you can even hear John Cowan's vocal influence on people, um, so and 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 when I hear just just the way songs are arranged and that uh, you know now I go back and listen to these old newgrass records and go wow we were trying that way back then okay so I'm I'm proud of what <laughs> it's so funny you know it's a, it's a, it's 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 a funny statement people will make when you're in the studio and you're not you're not hitting it like you want to yet I'll look up and I know I'm one of them that says it who goes wow I love what I'm trying to do and uh, so. <laughs> I, I can listen to tapes of. I, I've been listening to a tape of the New Grass Revival in 1972 at Illinois State University, and my lord, we were rough. But uh, we were rough, but it was rough and ready, you know. And, I mean, right. and, and it's a joyful noise, and 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 that's what I hear when I hear our old songs. That we were making a joyful noise. We were so happy to play our music, and and. Um, that was the overriding thing, you know. After the after the band ended, uh, some people you'd hear the comment, "Oh man, you, you know, I, I thought you guys would be more successful. You know, I always thought you would be." Did success break up Newgrass Revival? Well, of course not. But uh, I must I, and I, I can only speak for myself. But I always in that band, no matter what our financial situation was, or where the gig or what have you. Um, I always felt successful because I made a living doing exactly what I wanted to, that we played the music that we wanted to, and we always did. So that's what I'm really the most proud of, of our 18-year overview, that we always played it like we felt it. That's the way we, you know, we played it. We, We played it what we did what we wanted. So how much more successful can you be than to get to do you, exactly you can't what you be want. more su- you can't be more successful than and Sam from the bottom of my heart I have such great respect and admiration for you personally and for your music and I love what you have always done with your music and how kind you are to give us the time today believe me when when that virtual ceremony is on you might not be able to hear it but believe me i will be standing and cheering when the new grass revival is inducted into the hall of fame oh it don't get me thank you thank you don't get me wrong it tears me up right now i mean it's 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 pretty overwhelming and that of course was new grass revival founding member sam bush chatting with Katie Daly about the band's 2020 induction into the IBMA Bluegrass Hall of Fame. Congratulations to Sam and everyone involved with NGR over the years. Bluegrass Stories is hosted on SoundCloud.com and can be streamed on SoundCloud, Facebook, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and katiedaily.com. As always, thanks for listening to Bluegrass Stories. Thank you.